0: There are millions of Canadians living and working around the world. According to our guest this episode, Senior Vice President at RBC John Stackhouse, it's not a brain drain. It's something we need to celebrate and encourage. He sees each of these people as a seed that can grow into a vibrant network for Canada. They may have left our borders, but they've taken Canada with them. John also thinks this is an opportunity we shouldn't let slip by. Other countries have tapped into their diaspora to build strong connections to home for their global citizens. Is Canada ready to see the potential of what John calls our 11th province? John introduces us to some of the expats from his new book and talks about his ideas for developing a strategy to bring structure to the bonds between Canada and those that have left the country. I'm Michael Bassett and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is a bestselling author and one of Canada's leading voices on innovation and economic disruption. Some listeners will know John Stackhouse from his podcast, RBC Disruptors. Others who follow him on LinkedIn or Twitter will know him from his insightful daily posts as he works to make sense of the world and Canada's place in it. John's actual role is Senior Vice President in the office of the CEO at Royal Bank of Canada. In this role, he leads the organization's research and thought leadership on economic, technological and social change. Previously, he was Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail and Editor of Report on Business. He's also a Senior Fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute and the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. In this episode, we're going to talk to John about his latest book, Planet Canada, How Our Expats Are Shaping the Future. John, welcome to Bright Future.
1: Thanks, Michael. It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: To start, John, where did the idea for the book come from?
1: I guess it was originally when I lived overseas in the 1990s. I was based in New Delhi, India, as a foreign correspondent for the Globe and traveled widely in Asia and Africa. I was always struck and impressed running into Canadians everywhere, doing the most interesting things, usually in an uncelebrated way. Just kind of park that away, because it wasn't something I appreciated about our country, that we sent people out into the world, as well as we brought the world to Canada. And then when I got back to Canada spent time in Toronto in the 2000s, I was equally struck by the growing concern among Canadians about this population. And of course, this was post 9-11, but there was a growing almost resentment about people who had left the country. And we started to claw back certain rights and privileges, some of it for understandable reasons, because the world did change with 9-11, but some of it was too much and started to limit our collective place in the world. And I thought This is long-term unwise for a country that needs to really work with its people, because on our own, we're just 40 million people. And so set out on this book journey to both document the Canadian diaspora. We talk about all the diasporas who are here, but we have a diaspora of our own. And start to explore what this population, I call it our 11th province, can do for Canada and for all Canadians through the 2020s even more so in a post-COVID world.
0: Do you want to give some shape to what that 11th province looks like, how big it is, where most of them are? Well, we don't know exactly how big it is
1: because there's no census of Canadians. There's no record of people who leave the country, which may be something we want to work on. I was able to work with a research team at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto to collate databases to look at censuses, not only in Canada, but in other countries that do censuses based on country of origin. And then also do some social media research to detail where Canadians in aggregate might be and how many there might be. And we were able to feel fairly confident in saying this population is between two and three million people. And it varies by time of year and of course by year, but it's roughly in that zone. It's a significant population. You find them in big numbers in the major global centers, New York, London, Hong Kong at the top, but also San Francisco and Silicon Valley. More Canadians, I believe, than probably any other nationality there and growing numbers in places like Beirut and Dubai, in Mumbai and Delhi, because of the nature of dual citizenship and how it's grown over the last quarter century. This is suddenly a real strategic advantage for Canada, if we play it right, because not only do we have people out in the world in big numbers, we have a very multicultural population out in the world, which I'm not sure any other country, maybe Australia and Britain, Can lay claim to similar patterns. But wow, that's a real strength and advantage for Canada.
0: As you were digging into the research and the findings, what was the most surprising thing about this diaspora community or our approach to it?
1: I was really intrigued by that double diaspora, the hyphenated Canadians in all sorts of places. And it's not just people who are returning to or staying in their home country. And there's a lot of that. I mentioned Beirut, but countries like Somalia or Malaysia or India and Pakistan, you find a lot of Canadians of dual nationalities, which can be a real advantage for us if we think it through. But I was also interested to meet a lot of children of immigrants who had gone out into the world. And this, again, is also something I don't think we've quite come to grips with as a country. The big waves of immigration that started in the 1980s, 1990s, really, In this country, and it's been consistent. It's one of the Canadian success stories that, as a country for more than a quarter century, we have had cross party, cross country agreement that by and large, taking in immigration at almost 1% of our population per year is a good thing in good times and bad. And most Canadians are on board with that. That is really a credit to all Canadians that we've made that work. There's a really interesting dividend of that, that all the children of immigrants born in the 90s and 2000s. The millennials are now going out in the world. They're really comfortable going out into the world. They are children of the world in some ways. And they have that millennial, multicultural, pluralistic view that is rare and incredibly valuable. And you find this new generation in global centers in London, New York, Hong Kong, doing really interesting things. This generation is going to be critical to Canada in the 2020s and 2030s. We all know the Mark Carney's of the world, and they're terrific assets for Canada out there on the global stage. But I profile some of them in the book, and there's thousands, thousands more Canadians out there who are in their 20s, just getting going, who we got to help because as they take on the world, they're going to take us as a country with them. I don't think we're ready for that as a country. You asked what surprised me on the home front. That kind of surprised me that we like to speak of ourselves as a more open-minded, internationally-minded country. And in many ways we are, but we can also be parochial. We can be more inward than we sometimes like to think of ourselves as. And that's going to hurt us as we come out of COVID and go into a more digital, more networked world. If we can think through some of the opportunities here, because there's more opportunities than challenges, and seize on this new generation that's out there. And I just love the millennials I got to spend a chapter on based in London. If we can get behind them and help them take on the world, they'll take Canada on a terrific journey through the 20s and 30s.
0: I want to anticipate a question that people might have talking about this generation of immigrants, their next generation would then emigrate and leave the country. Would you see that as some kind of a failure of our ability to retain that generation? No, this is a strength and
1: we need to celebrate this as a strength. As an example, there's a young woman, Yasmin Rafai, who I profile, whose parents immigrated from Iran. She grew up in Edmonton. I met her when she was a grad student at Oxford University. She's now in med school at Stanford. She is an extraordinary individual who I think is going to do some terrific things in the decades to come. Think about what Canada has gained from her going to Oxford and Stanford. She may come back. I suspect she will, but I'm not going to speak for her whether she comes back or not, or when she comes back, is less material than whether she takes Canada with her in whatever she is doing. She is now part of global networks that we desperately need to be part of. One of the points I try to stress in the book, and I didn't appreciate this going into the book, is that we live in a world where networks are more powerful than institutions. Think about the most powerful forces in the world in 2020, beyond a virus the most powerful forces in the world this year have been networks. Black Lives Matter. It's not an institution. It has brought down institutions. Greta Thunberg and her climate networks, more powerful than some nation states. They have brought institutions to their knees. We could go on and on with this. This is a new age of people power, and it's not people power out demonstrating in the streets, although we see that. It is people power networking on their phones, connecting. With each other wherever they are. By and large, that's incredible. That's a very positive force for good in the world. As a country, we still need our institutions and we need to be part of global institutions. We need to be much more focused on also being part of this is an and, not an or also being part of global networks. And you can't direct these networks, they will take you to places. And this new generation who are out there, like Yasmin, are Getting deeper and deeper into these networks. I'm hoping we can pause for a moment and say, This is fantastic. How do we plug into that? And if someone like that wants to stay out there, that's great. If they want to come back, that's also great. But one isn't better than the other as long as we help them become stronger nodes in those global networks. The power of networks is not one to one, it's one to 10, and then it goes exponentially from there. So every one who leaves Canada, if we manage this correctly, actually isn't a loss of one. It's a gain of 10. That is the power of network thinking. I actually didn't appreciate this until I spent a lot of time with people in Silicon Valley who walked me through the power of networks. They kept saying, John, you're thinking analog, one to one. You need to think digital, which is what networks is. It's one to ten, one to ten, one to ten to a hundred exponentially. That's exponential thinking. As a little country of 40 million people, we need to think about because that then makes us more relevant in a planet of 8 billion.
0: That analog and networked piece is something that many Canadians would probably struggle with. You talk about in the early 2000s, a lot of the talk there was around this brain drain. And your book profiles some incredible Canadians, very influential, really bright, really exceptional folks that we can all be proud of. And yet, sometimes you may think, well, wouldn't it have been nice if they could stay in Canada or wouldn't that have been better? That was the dynamic in those discussions. Is it a complete change or do we just need to reorient our thinking?
1: We have to reorient our thinking. We have to think like a small power, like in Israel or Singapore. They actually have fought in years past to get people to come back. They've run return programs, incentivized people to come back and realized they're thinking about it the wrong way. It's brain circulation. If people go out, that's fine. In fact, let's encourage people, especially when they're younger, to get out, go, 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 go. And then, yeah, a lot of you will come back and that's great. And you'll come back stronger, better, and you'll bring your networks with you. So it isn't one going out, one coming back. It's one going out, 10 coming back through networks. We have to be much more confident in that approach and not think they've left, that's a loss. We need to think strategically, say they've left We can make that a gain. I profile people in the book who you probably have never heard of, like Shona Brown, who was one of the early senior executives at Google and one of the most influential people in Silicon Valley who has (laughs) incredible networks in big tech, in the corporate world, especially in the Western United States. No one paid attention to her when she left. No one has called her. You know what? That's what Israel does. That's what Singapore does. They're not like can you come back and run a company here? Great if you do, but as long as you're there, do you mind if we call you and maybe ask you a few questions and maybe you can make some suggestions to us as a country? There are so many Canadians out there who want to help Canada. In fact, there's a little kind of rule I uh, started to follow that the longer people are away and sometimes the farther that they are, the more patriotic. They become. It's a bit of nostalgia, a bit of identity at play there, but also a recognition that Canada made them who they are. So, another great Canadian in Silicon Valley, Chamath Pulapatia, an early executive at Facebook and now runs a really influential VC fund called Social Capital, sees himself as what was his line in the book that he owes everything to Canada because Canada made him. He was also a child of immigrants, grew up actually as refugees and it was the canadian school system the refugee system and the university system because he was a co-op student at waterloo all of that you almost could find nowhere else in the world we need to appreciate our social infrastructure especially our schooling lots of room for improvement there but is as good as any in the world k to phd and then a lot of people leave And sometimes there's a bit of resentment of that. We subsidized your education here, and now you're leaving. You should kind of give us a refund. That's an interesting question as to whether people should pay it back. They actually tend to do that through alumni donations. That aside, we need to be much more strategic about reaching out to people like Chamath and saying, help us as a country. What are you seeing? Because you're on the cutting edge of the VC world. What do we need to learn from you? What should we be thinking about differently? And you'll find Canadians like that all over the world who are waiting for the phone call or who have put their hand up and said, I want to help. There's no system for that. And that's one of the recommendations of the book is let's create a system outside of politics that supports these networks and helps our expats actually take these networks to a new level.
0: You talk about other countries and how they've done this work and really moved it forward in a deliberate way. What are the actual programs that other countries have in place to really get this going?
1: We examined the diaspora strategies of scores of countries. And Canada is like at the back of the bus in terms of a diaspora strategy because we don't even fully recognize that we have one. And we're doing lots of good work in places, but we don't have a fulsome, confident, declared national strategy, which is what I'm hoping the book can inspire. The menu out there is terrific and fascinating. It goes from India, which has a unit within the Foreign Affairs Ministry for Overseas Indians that gives them special status, gives them a special visa, gives their children visa rights. So you, as a child of an overseas Indian, can get a work visa to go to a work term in India. You get to the front of the line there. There's tax arrangements and tax policy that we can get into is very complex, and, I, and there's a really important moment here for Canada to iron out some kinks on that front. Ireland, Scotland and England or Britain more broadly have more and more ambitious return programs, not getting people to move back, but to come back, start as a tourist, come for a visit and then come and invest and then build those linkages. Go back to wherever, go back to Boston, go back to Toronto. But remember, you got a special relationship with us here in Scotland or Ireland. Italy is one of half a dozen or more countries that gives representation to its overseas people in parliament. That may be a step too far for Canadians, and you can think of the constitutional nightmare that could (laughs) lead to if we tried to rethink how our parliament is carved up. The spirit of that is interesting. They're giving an independent voice to expats. I've recommended creating a unit in Rideau Hall. Not my idea. This has been developed through lots of good thinkers over the years, but take it away from partisan politics. Give it the status and the leadership of the Governor General. And we've seen GGs over the decades who have been the de facto voice for our expats. Well, let's formalize that and then build networks. And Singapore, Korea, Australia, and New Zealand are very ambitious on this front. Create networks that aren't just ad hoc little associations of people who get together once in a while, but give them a direct line back into that unit, be it in Rideau Hall or elsewhere, where The Canadians in New Zealand, for instance, have a clear channel and voice to say, hey, Canada, here's something really interesting to think about. This is critical for government, but I think it's also really valuable for Canadian business to know who to go to. If we're thinking about many of your listeners, business leaders are thinking about, hmm, how do we think about our Asia strategy? Just to pick that as an example. Well, wouldn't it be advantageous to know that there's a network of Canadians in Japan and Korea and Singapore or elsewhere already established, formalized, who you could call and say, we're thinking about taking a different approach to your market. What should we be thinking about? Those Canadians and the hundreds I spoke to would love to have that opportunity and think of what it could do for not just Canadian government, but Canadian Businesses, Canadian nonprofits, Canadian public sector organizations who just need a different perspective, a perspective from people who understand Canada.
0: It's amazing to me that we don't have that. It is one of those things where when you say it, it makes a ton of sense. But when you think about the kinds of engagements, if you've worked abroad or somewhere else, they focus around Canada Day or hockey or Canadian Thanksgiving or Halloween or those little moments that your Canadian-ness comes out. But it's not strategic. It's not ongoing. It's not meaningful in any way other than a symbolic. I guess my assumption was that these other things existed because there have been some examples in the past. Are those the exceptions rather than the rule?
1: Yeah, unfortunately they are the exception and they're based generally on the strength of individuals, which is a good thing, but also is a little too risky, because when those individuals move on, the efforts often diminish or collapse. And when you look at Canada's successes over the decades in expatriate engagement or in a diaspora strategy, it's usually based on the determination of the local diplomats, the consul general typically, who just says, darn it, I'm going to do something significant here, and a coalition. The best example, I spent a chapter on this in the book, is the C-100 in San Francisco. It started in 2010 out of the Vancouver Olympics when the Canadians said, wait a sec, they love the Own the Podium program. And at the time in 2010, we had lost Nortel, BlackBerry was starting to slip, and they felt we were losing the podium in technology. So they came up with the C-100, working with government, working with the Consul General, created a very effective nonprofit association, volunteer-driven that not only helps the members, but it has helped Canadians. So they've brought scores and scores, probably hundreds of Canadian entrepreneurs to the valley and introduced them to Canadians, but non-Canadians as well. Think of that network, one equals 10. And then they've also been a really useful advisor to Canadian governments. And both conservatives and liberal ministers have reached out to the C100 over the last 10 years saying, help us with Tax policy, with innovation policy, with immigration policy. And we've got some more effective policies in this country as a result. Think of what we could do if we turn the C100 into the C1 million and we're able to, in different ways, tap into those, not just tap into, build those and formalize those networks. So they're not dependent on the consul general of the day or the volunteers of the day, but they endure like the C100 has for a decade and become that two way flow and that network power, the force multiplier, as people often call it. We as a little country of 40 million, because we're often a little uh, deceived by our geography and think we're a big country, which we are geographically, but we're small, 40 million is a small number. How do we force multiply the 40 million? We do it through that spirit of the C-100 or maybe the C-1 million.
0: How do you think the pandemic has affected? the opportunities to engage this 11th province or or the structure of that 11th province?
1: It's like so many things, it's kind of frozen it. And there's a real opportunity for us on the table to get going in the next year and to build the networks that we will need for the recovery, but actually can force multiply the recovery. The point one is most Canadian expats stayed in place. (laughs) Obviously, they didn't all come rushing back. There's a lot of Canadians out there now, many of them literally sitting at home, still doing those incredible things. While the rest of us can't get out there, and that ranges from government folks to to diplomats to all of us in business or in the education sector or the healthcare sector, we're not traveling anymore. How do we think about a new approach to networking with the world? Because we're not going to go back to that global travel of, 2019, and before anytime soon. If we think about 2021, 2022, maybe as having less of that global travel, how do we network with the world through our expats and let them take us virtually deeper into the world? Then secondly, how do we think more strategically about the more divided world that we're already in, but it's going to get more fragmented and a little more elbows up? Probably, and unfortunately, but it's just reality and one of those cycles of history that we're uh, kind of in the middle of. Canada is still beloved around the world, despite the serious cases that we see in the news. Most people in the world still have a very good view of Canada. While that is the case, how do we seize on that where multilateral institutions may have been the place that we go to before, and they still should be? simultaneously, how do we also be a little more opportunistic, show a little more chutzpah and say, let's get those Canadians in all these places to help us be a little more ambitious about what we're seeking in those parts of the world while we can.
0: The pandemic has really changed the dynamic as it relates to space. To a certain extent, space and localization is so much more important. But then on the other hand, it's completely neutralized. We can talk to anybody Same way that you and I are talking, which isn't face to face. That opportunity for networking and thinking in a networked way seems far more possible because you really can connect with everyone. You don't have to find a space and somewhere to go together.
1: That's such an interesting observation, Michael. If we all just sit back and think about our own behaviors over the last six, seven months and how challenged they've been, and this probably varies by by the day, but many of us know what it's like to literally sit in your basement. Or your attic and be isolated and think, I miss working with people. I miss being in a room full of people or going to a conference and meeting lots of people. And I'm suddenly a bit more of a solo artist, or I'm working with my small team and trying to do the best we can. At the same time, many of us might also reflect on how we have networked in phenomenal ways over the last six months and met new people plugged into new networks, people we've never met physically before, and suddenly we're deeper into networks. And maybe you're thinking of those situations where you've been on calls with dozens of people, or maybe it's hundreds of people who you otherwise never would have met. And often those are global calls. And I often think about that thinking, wow, that's really, not only is that impressive when that happens, but what an opportunity. If we think about those two situations. How do we ensure that each of our organizations, but collectively that our country is more of that latter situation where we're leaning in as hard as it is, leaning into those networks, plugging in where we can, not as a country, not as organizations, metaphorically sitting in our basements, just trying to get by, but leaning in through the channels that are available to us as a country to plug into a world that will accelerate into the 2020s.
0: You talk a lot about what we can do to those that are already there, but you highlighted it when you talked about the millennial dimension and getting young people to go out into the world. You think about a gap year that other countries have where they try to promote that, get out into the world. The famous example, obviously, is the Australians and them going off everywhere. Is that part of this strategy as well is to build more levers or more people who build out those networks and get out of Canada?
1: Absolutely. And COVID has really challenged us and created probably a quiet crisis on this front. We have become probably the best country in the world at attracting international students. I don't think we fully, because we haven't been very strategic about it. And I say that because Most institutions have done it largely for business model reasons, and we haven't, as a country, been strategic about bringing the world here. I think we're moving in that direction. We're bringing hundreds of thousands of students, even in the pandemic, we're doing this, which is phenomenal. And they are getting great educations, and many are staying here. And the better we get at that, the better Canada will be. I like to say it's a shame for someone to come and learn how to live through four winters, To then have to leave. Like they're perfectly trained as a Canadian and they're super smart at whatever they're doing because they've graduated usually quite well in whatever they're doing. So, how do we strategically turn that to our advantage? I think we're on a good path in terms of bringing international students to Canada and that will improve as we come out of the pandemic. Where we're not as strong is getting Canadian students out into the world. Yeah, you mentioned Australia. Australia is really. I mean, they have the walkabout culture, but the government has really gotten behind this and given incentives to Australians under the age of 25 just to get out. I like, Just get out is kind of the message. They have a politer way of saying it. Their view is, please just go, work, study, walkabout for six months, 12 months, whatever it is. You will come back as a better Australian because you will be more globally minded than you could ever be if you just stayed here on the island. So how do we as a country that wants to be globally minded and is in so many ways, but not as fully as we need to be, how do we get this generation and the next generation of college and university students, particularly, to spend significant time, significant parts of their education abroad? One of the many unfortunate parts of COVID is that there actually was momentum on this front, thanks to the work. Roland Paris and Margaret Biggs did on the need for global education strategy. It faces some resistance because it's seen as elitist giving financial incentives for students to go abroad and study. But again, we're not strategic thinking if those students go out and spend six months or 12 months or longer, they're going to come back as more globally minded and therefore way better in business, government, nonprofits, whatever they do, or as entrepreneurs, or they're going to stay abroad and network if we plug into their networks. As we think about recovery, I think it's really important to get back on that strategy, not only of bringing international students to Canada, and we need to help universities and colleges be set up for that, not just for their benefit, but for Canada's benefit, but also think about how to get Canadians out into the world and stay connected with them. Big whiteboard opportunity there for us to take on. And then I think the last Challenge Michael on that front that the listeners of your podcast can really be helpful with is helping Canadian organizations be more determined to hire people with global experience because market signals are more powerful in many ways than any government policy. And unfortunately, and I continue to hear this, Michael, even since the book has come out, people have messaged me from across Canada, but also globally saying, They're so interested in everything they've read and heard, and then they share their own story about how they went out into the world and came back, and they were disqualified from application processes, couldn't even get an interview because they did not have Canadian experience. But it's interesting how that Canadian experience issue, and it's an important problem for us to address in terms of new Canadians, it's also a challenge with non-new Canadians, Canadians who have gone out into the world, gained global non-Canadian experience, and come back and essentially been told, those five years that you spent working in China or working in South Africa is really, really interesting, but just doesn't make sense for us in our organization. We probably couldn't do anything with that. Wow, we are really hurting ourselves, not just as a country, but our organizations, if we're not seeing the strategic advantage of that experience. So I hope as we think about a global Canadian strategy and a strategy for a more global Canada coming out of the pandemic, that we also hold the mirror up to ourselves and not just to government. This is on all of us in the private sector, public sector, nonprofit sector, to think about how do we value true global experience? And the more we can value that, the better those market signals will be. And those market signals make their way into schools with incredible speed so that students will say, okay, if that's what brand X is hiring for, I'm going to go get some of that experience because I want to work for brand X.
0: With your permission, I want to pivot a little bit because the book is, it's a great read. It's an easy read. It has great profiles. You've talked about some of the very interesting folks in it. I don't know that that's really a compliment for someone who's been a journalist. And of course, that's your profession. That's those are the skill sets that you have. But it is something that you have talked about on your podcast in how the pressures, and we see this in our organization, we see it in all organizations that are trying to have an influence with their research, that are trying to use evidence to make a change. There is this need now, it seems, to really be clear, to really use storytelling, to really change the dynamic of research and evidence to make it resonate. I'm really curious to dig in a little bit in terms of why do you think there is this pressure to change the way in which we think about research to help it to continue to have resonance.
1: Thank you for the kind words, by the way. I will definitely take that because writing is always an exercise in frustration and failure. I think any writer would recognize that you never achieve perfection and it's a joy, but it's also a labor, one that we should not underestimate, but also undervalue in our education system. We live in an age of narrative. We've seen that in all sorts of political theater. That's not necessarily a bad thing, nor is it necessarily a new thing. A narrative has been with us from ancient times. Humans are storytellers. It's one of the things that defines us, I think, as a species. We tell stories. We see ourselves in stories. We create myths and stories. We're a storytelling species. Storytelling is, in some ways, as it has always been, but is also profoundly different because of the power of technology, social media, mobile sharing. We're telling stories more and better and more often, and we're sharing stories better than humanity has ever been able to share. That's all wonderful. It's great that we can talk to people in different cultures if we want and hear their stories and let them tell their stories. We're moving away from appropriated storytelling. For research, it poses a particular challenge because our attention spans have gone down they've shrunk while we live in a narrative age a storytelling age the story is often very short the story is often a picture or a gif or a gif depending on your preferred pronunciation or a graph and that's a really interesting challenge to research i say to researchers don't fight it this is an enormous opportunity your research can reach more humans really well educated curious critically thinking humans than Ever in the history of research. What a gift. But it means you probably have to tell your research in a different format and think about research as a graph or as a picture or as a quick video clip, as well as a white paper, as well as a serious report. This is not an either or. But researchers need to be decathletes in this day and age. The best decathletes aren't necessarily the best at all 10 events. But you got to be pretty good at all 10. And that includes communication. The researcher should not think I can kind of hand this off to someone else. Decathlons don't work that way. You don't get someone else to throw the javelin for you just because you're good as a sprinter or whatever. You got to do all 10 events. I love to stress to researchers don't underestimate the power of communication in your hands. Others can help you, but don't try to just hand it off to someone else because you need to be thinking about the research because of those communication channels. Because if you aren't thinking through the research from the initial question with that outcome in mind, it's going to fall short. No one wants to do research for the sake of research. You want to do it because it affects change. That's what drives us all to get out of bed in the morning. If your research, whatever it is, is really motivating you because you want to affect positive change in the world, then this ability to communicate more powerfully, more persuasively with more people than ever is an extraordinary platform for you as a researcher to embrace and to engage in. And maybe that's the last critical point to stress is engagement because communication is no longer a monologue. It is a dialogue. Sometimes it's loud. Sometimes it's a little noisier than we would like, but it's pretty terrific that we can all get the feedback Most of us don't like negative feedback quite as much as we like positive feedback, but negative feedback or constructive criticism, preferably, makes us stronger. It makes our research stronger. Being able to put research out there to test it and have it be tested, critiqued, added to by others is really powerful. John, what's next for you? Continuing to do what I do at RBC, I feel very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in to help the organization, but also our clients and communities, which span the full extent of Canada and beyond, to understand the world around us and understand the macro forces of innovation and technology, but also to work with our economics team on trying to understand this profound economic crisis and to understand the opportunities for our country, which I think are so rich. There's so much potential for us as Canadians. We are Born into a place of privilege as a country. And we take that onus very humbly as a country. We mess it up, certainly more than we should or would want to. Canadians, by and large, take our privileged position in the world quite seriously as this world tries to come to grips with the enormous historic challenges that are right not in front of us, they're all around us now of the pandemic. What is the role for Canada and Canadians? Going into 2021 and beyond, how do we ensure that that role is valuable not only to Canada but to the world because that will flow back to Canada in a great way? Working with Canadians, but organizations like the Conference Board on those conversations is central to what I'm trying to do at RBC. The technological transformation that COVID has accelerated has put us in a really critical spot as a country that we need to seize on and that we can seize on. We've got everything. That most of the world wants. We've got a terrific population, very well educated, great institutions, this global network of Canadians that I'm hoping we can focus more on, access to more markets in the world than most countries have a peaceful, stable home country. We kind of got it all. You know, I hope we can work together, because that's been the Canadian story of the pandemic. We have worked together as a people, which is the Canadian way. That's part of what I try to illustrate in Planet Canada. That's also the Canadian way of. Canadians out in the world—it's their value proposition often in what they do. But how do we continue to work together to build just an enormous opportunity for us going into 2021?
0: John, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm really glad we were able to connect. Thank you so much for bringing the book and the insights of that research to our listeners.
1: Oh, Michael, thank you, thank you so much, and thank you to the Conference Board for all you're doing.
0: You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen Dehamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer, and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the Conference Board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.